I like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. We are now two weeks out from this year's state budget deadline. That's on March 31st. And we took a step closer to a final state budget this week when both houses of the state legislature approved their one-house budgets. That's when lawmakers build their own budget plans as a sort of rebuttal to the governor's. And that's important because it shows us where lawmakers stand on top issues. So we're going to go through a few of them and tell you where the legislature wound up. On housing, the governor wants to build 800,000 new homes and allow developers to override local zoning laws to get there. The legislature kept that target, but doesn't want to override local zoning. Instead, they want to offer financial incentives for that growth. On the minimum wage, the governor wants to tie it to inflation moving forward. The legislature likes that idea, but also wants to raise it first, though we don't know by how much. On income taxes, the governor wants to keep those flat this year. The legislature mostly agrees, but they want to raise taxes on people earning more than $5 million to fund more services. On cigarettes, the governor wants to raise the tax on a pack of cigarettes by a dollar to $5.35 and ban menthol-flavored tobacco. The legislature is fine with the tax hike, but doesn't like the ban on menthol. On new funding for the MTA, which isn't doing well financially, the governor wants to raise a payroll tax downstate and use casino gambling revenue. And the legislature is fine with using the casino money, but wants to raise corporate taxes instead of a payroll tax. And on charter schools, Hochul wanted to allow more in New York City by lifting a regional cap. But the legislature is against that idea. It's a lot to work out in two weeks. But Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins said she thinks they can get there. You know, I think we've all uh, looked at the issues and, yeah, there are, again, um, different approaches. But what I always say is that we're all rowing in the same direction for the most part. And so that's always easier. On the other side of the aisle, Senate Republican Leader Rob Ort said the Democrats' budget plan fell short for struggling New Yorkers. We've seen that people have said affordability is an issue. This budget does nothing to help New Yorkers who are facing affordability challenges. It spends more money. It grows the budget. But Democrats say their budget plans are targeted towards some of the state's most vulnerable residents, like tenants facing eviction or people who can't afford food. So to get a closer look on where Democrats stand on these top issues, at least in the Assembly, we spoke this week with Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty. Take a look. Speaker Hasty, thanks for coming back. We appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Dan. Good to see you. So let's start with housing. Governor Hochul has a big housing proposal in this year's state budget, her proposed budget. She wants to build 800,000 new housing units in New York over the next decade. But the way that she wants to do it is different than what's in your one-house budget proposal. She wants to set these targets for every locality and then uh, kind of force them into building this housing over a number of years each year. Uh, your proposal is different because it doesn't require that this housing get built, and it provides incentives for these localities to build that housing instead. Tell me why you went with that approach. Well, I think, um, you know, for the members, you know, when we have our conferences, we, we listen to the members and, uh, you know, overriding local uh, zoning is a, is a very serious uh, issue and one that members are not, you know, too enthusiastic about doing. 
Um, so what we wanted to do was we agreed with the governor's goals, but we just felt like, you know, giving the uh, localities an incentive to do it, you know, aim funding is important. So uh, we tried to find ways to be assisting. Um, they can spend the money any way they wish that, that, that they feel, uh, which uh, um, is rightfully important to them and their, their, their local government lives. Um, we know that there's infrastructure issues. We'll deal with those as well. Uh, so we just tried to, you know, put it in the best interest that we could um, for the locals and say, yeah, this is a good idea. And look, the state has even uh, given us incentives to uh, to help get us there. You also have a different uh, part of your, your housing proposal in your one house budget. And I don't know if I'm reading it right, but I believe that you're endorsing what's called good cause eviction, which would require landlords to have a so-called good cause to evict someone. It would also kind of set a cap on rent increases in some cases. Uh, am I reading that correctly? And tell me about how you would negotiate that with the governor's office. I know she hasn't really been that willing to discuss it publicly. Well, I mean, the governor's put things in her budget that, you know, that she wants. And, and so we put things in our resolution that we support. And then that's how the three legs of the stool between us, the governor and the Senate, we have to figure those things out. Um, and the governor has touched on some we in, in our resolution amongst in this proposal, uh, amongst others about trying to get us to the capacity of housing we need, but also to make sure that people's lives just are not disrupted by having you know huge increases in their rent that really aren't set to anything other than it's a, the lease is up and the landlord has the ability to raise the rent. And then also the disruption that um, if you've been a good tenant uh, and you you know let's say you've been living in a place you know and you've set your life up in that place, all of a sudden at the end of the lease the uh, you know you may have to have a, a life-changing move. So we just want to kind of give some stability. you know New York City is, um, and this isn't just a city issue, but I'm using the city as an example, that New York City is the number one renter city in the nation. And so we have to do something to help stabilize uh, uh, tenants when it comes to uh, the, the concerns about their living conditions as well. You know, property owners have pushed back on the good cause proposal, basically saying that you know they can't afford it. They want they want to be able to raise the rent as much as they want to, uh, hopefully at reasonable rates. And they don't agree with the language in good cause in terms of what is a good cause eviction. What would you say to them? Look, I, listen. I, like I said, I always believe that um, there's always a way to compromise. To compromise, uh, often. Uh, compromises when both sides don't get exactly what you know what they want but also i know there's been different ideas thrown around and that's one of the reasons why we didn't put uh necessarily put in a bill it's really around the concept of protecting uh tenants but also you know understanding respecting uh you know property owners as well but there has to be a way to not have uh tenants you know worry about uh you know rents doubling and 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 just you know in the middle of winter your lease is up and all of a sudden now you have to scramble uh, to find housing. So it's just trying to just give stability, uh, you know, to people's lives. And, you know, people have suggested that, you know, if there's a cap that, you know, a landlord can still find ways to go around the cap, you know, maybe you have a, a it to be, uh, you know, uh, mediated or, uh, or have the, you know, the courts to, uh, say, yeah, there's an extenuating circumstance. So I, I think there's, there's a, I think there's a path if, uh, you know, people are willing. You know, I want to stick in New York City for a second. I know good cause and housing is obviously a statewide issue, but 
In New York City, we have this really important conversation happening right now around the MTA and funding for the MTA. The governor's proposal had proposed uh, basically using a, a payroll tax in the MTA service area to fund it. Uh, I know that you have rejected that, and you've also rejected a proposed fair hike for the MTA. It was 275 now, it was going to go up, may still go up. Uh, you don't want that to happen, obviously. And you also want to start a pilot program for free buses in each boroughs, which would be exciting for a lot of commuters, I think. Uh, tell me how you came to that instead of the governor's plan. Um, well, first off, we wanted to make sure that the MTA is fully fully funded. Sure. And everybody knows uh, the uh, the MTA is, is, also, also, is often described as the artery system for the body of the economy of the state of New York. So... Uh, so starting there, we knew it had to be fully funded, but we just had different on different ideas on how to get there. We agree with the governor on the revenue uh, for casinos, uh, um, uh, right? Going there. And so we just differed on payroll mobility. We still have one of the most competitive uh, corporate rate, uh, uh, corporate tax rates here in New York. So we just felt like the MTA is a uh, you know primarily that's how people get to work. So. You know, some of the corporations, particularly ones who had gotten, uh, you know, a tremendous break uh, during the Trump years to just contribute a little bit more to helping to make sure that the, the artery system of the New York's economy is fully funded. Right. So I wanted to mention the corporate tax, but I also want to I asked you the MTA question first because you also have a proposal in there and the Senate does as well to raise income taxes on high income earners. So we're not talking about anybody below $5 million a year, which is quite a bit of money for people. So would the aim be for that revenue raised from those taxes to go partly to the MTA as well? Or is that just to kind of generally raise money to pay for things that the state does? I'd say a little bit of, you know, a little bit of both, because when, when the assembly, when we put together our one house, we do try to put a financial plan. So we don't just put a spending wish list out there without uh, uh, telling uh, the public how we plan on, on paying. Um, you know, as much as people uh, talk about the outflux of, of, of uh, people from New York, we did increase the number of millionaires in New York by 15, almost 15,000. Uh, so again, just asking those who are doing well to just contribute a little more to the overall good, um, I think uh, is a, it's a, it's very helpful, um, and that's what we we are asking those who are doing really really well to help uplift those the rest in society. And I'm sorry, Dan, you did ask me one other thing about the pilot program. Um, All right, free buses on uh, the MTA. Sure. Uh, it was something that members, you know, had, had brought up, and we know that other uh, cities are doing this, but like, I'd say the closest city uh, that's in Boston is is exploring this, and but we wanted to be uh, fair and, and, and say, let's uh, have uh, two in each borough, one, you know, based on like poverty and things like that, and the other one would be based on, you know, economic uh, I'd say, uh, factors, and we would leave that to the MTA to, to figure those out. And before I let you go, as you and I both know, time moves differently here in Albany. Uh, you and the Senate are apart from the governor on some of these controversial issues. And as you pass your one house budget proposals, you have about two weeks left before the budget deadline. Do you think that's enough time to come together on these issues? Or would you rather see uh, you go right into April and kind of have some more time to work these things out? 
Well, you know, in Albany speak, two two weeks is a lifetime. Could feel like two uh -huh. years. <laughs> so, so two weeks can seem like two minutes, but it could also seem like two years. Yeah. Uh, I, I never go into a, a, you know, a budget negotiating um, session um, expecting doom and gloom. Uh, we're going to work hard, of course. Um, we want to have an on-time budget, but as I've said since the time, even before I was speaker, uh, when I was just even a brand new member, uh, the uh, the right budget is is more important than an on-time budget. So, but I would hope that we have an on-time budget. You know, I work hard to get there, but um, I, I'm not going to accept, uh, you know, a budget less than what uh, we can fairly negotiate that highlights some of the uh, priorities that these the the members want. Uh, so I can't sacrifice that sacrifice that for the sake of, uh, you know, timeliness. All right, we will be watching over the next two weeks. Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty, thank you so much. All right, thank you, Dan, be well. And we'll hear from the Republican side of the Assembly next week. But turning now to politics in New York. Republicans have picked a new party chair here in New York after the former chair, Nick Langworthy, was elected to Congress. And that's really important because Republicans have some momentum right now, at least in New York. They picked up three seats in the U.S. House of Representatives in last year's elections. And that might not sound like a lot, but it helped put Republicans in control of the U.S. House this year. So Republicans gathered in Albany this week to pick a new chair that they hope will drive that momentum forward and bring new wins over the next few years. That was Ed Cox, who was actually already the chair for about a decade before Langworthy. And he's got big plans for the party's future. Here's what he told reporters this week. We need to build the party to a place where we can challenge the Democrats who have supermajorities in both houses of the legislature and elect the officials that we need so we are a strong second party here, standing up for the things that we believe in. You heard me talk about them. That's safe streets, good jobs and good schools. These are the basics that the people of New York want, and they're not getting it now from the Democratic Party. And a fun fact about Ed Cox is that he's actually the son-in-law of former President Richard Nixon. He's been married to Tricia Nixon Cox for more than 50 years. But turning now to a new edition of On the Bill, where we tell you about a bill out of Albany that you might not hear about otherwise. This week, we're talking about S5365, which would remove the tax on medical cannabis. So right now, New York is really focused on the state's rollout of adult-use cannabis. And while that industry is just now beginning, the medical cannabis industry has been around since 2016. And there's a worry among some medical cannabis providers that their industry will be left in the dust as the adult-use market expands. That brings us to S5365. Right now, the tax on medical cannabis in New York is 7%. And while that tax is paid by the dispensary and not at the point of sale, it can still drive up the cost for patients. So to combat that and help bolster the industry, Democrats want to repeal the tax on medical cannabis. State Senator Jeremy Cooney carries that bill in the Senate. Uh, the excise tax on medical cannabis product is a regressive tax that drives up the cost to patients, the same patients who can least afford the product that they need to get through their day. Right? You don't tax Tylenol because it's to help you. It's, it's what a patient needs to feel better, to find healing. Why are we taxing medical cannabis? 
And that bill could pass as part of the state budget or at any point, really. More on that in the next few weeks. But first, we take a look at New York's paid family leave law. When New York first passed paid family leave in 2016, the program was considered among the most generous in the country. But some lawmakers say it still doesn't go far enough for parents grieving the loss of their child. Alexis Young reports. New York State paid family leave allows eligible workers to take up to 12 weeks off within one year at 67% of their pay. For three different items, one is for bonding with a uh, newborn or an adopted child. The second one is uh, taking being the main caregiver for a uh, family member with a serious health condition. Or the third item is uh, what's called military exigency, where a military uh, member of the employee's family asked to serve or asked to go on, on, on tour and uh, the employee can spend time with them before they, they, they go out on service. Martin Patrick is the senior HR consultant manager at GTM Payroll and HR. An HR department is frequently involved when an eligible employee applies for paid family leave. Paid family leave was passed in New York in 2016. The program was among the most generous in the country at the time, and it was even strengthened in November 2021 to include siblings, whether that be half-siblings, step-siblings, biological, or adopted. Still, lawmakers say the language in workers' compensation law, specifically paid family leave, has left some New Yorkers in vulnerable positions. The, the paid leave is, in, is administered by the insurance company that the employer contracts with. So if the, if the, uh, the insurance company uh, receives notice of a child is, is passed away or a relative has passed away, that the employee's taken care of, they're going to revoke the, the leave. It, it's up to the insurance company to do that. This can be particularly trying for pregnant people and families who experience stillbirths. Push for Empowered Pregnancy is a stillbirth awareness and prevention organization. Their main goal, eradicating preventable stillbirths. Push supports the bill sponsored by Assemblywoman Jennifer Raj Kumar and Senator Timothy Kennedy that would change the workers' compensation law to provide paid family leave following a stillbirth. Assemblywoman Ratnish Bashat Hermlin openly supported the bill at a press conference. She has a personal connection to the issue. When you think of the definition of family paid leave, mm. you will notice that in the language it says bonding bonding with you know a, a, a child bonding with a loved one and i think the people's perspective perception is that well if you just went through a stillbirth experience you do not have a child to bond with the assemblywoman had her son jonah in 2016 the same year paid family leave was passed but events after her delivery made her question continuing on as a member of the legislature. Uh, he came out living for an hour or two, and then he was, he passed. And after that whole experience, I had nothing, no resources, nothing. In fact, people had just expected me to get up and work. I didn't even have a chance to mourn my son. There were a number of people, some, some were advocates on different issues, who felt that um, they didn't understand. They didn't understand why I needed to take time off because I didn't have a child. 
I felt that it was inhumane. And I had questioned whether I wanted to do this anymore. When Samantha Palermo and her partner became pregnant after a long bout of fertility issues, they were excited to bring their son Archer into their world. But Palermo says Archer stopped moving near the end of her pregnancy, and during an impromptu hospital visit, Archer was stillborn. So when I finally got home, it took a couple days, but I go to call work, and they said, we need a certificate of live birth, and I lost yeah. it. I lost I said, Archer's not with us. He passed away. And she took a moment, and then she says, I'm sorry, but we're no longer going to be able to approve your paid family leave. Black mothers are twice as likely to experience a stillbirth as white mothers. Age also plays a factor, with mothers under age 20 or over age 40 at higher risk. Obstetrician and gynecologist Dr. Patty Ang, affiliated with Push for Empowered Pregnancy, feels moms should have time to grieve the loss of their child and physically heal from their pregnancy. I think a woman with a stillbirth should definitely still be entitled to the full paid family leave. After a stillbirth experience, um, so a woman uh, still needs the same amount of time healing physically from the delivery uh, and the pregnancy. Um, Now, in addition to that, uh, emotional um, support is extremely important for these women uh, for obvious reasons. Without paid family leave, senior HR consultant manager Martin Patrick suggests parents who lose a child could look to other benefits. After someone has tragically passed away, that's more of a bereavement procedure situation because the, the family concept is you're either bonding or taking care of a person with a serious health condition. And once that serious health condition or the, or the, or the child is no longer there, uh, I think that really stretches into bereavement more than it does paid family leave. An employee who's distressed could apply for, you know, disability if they can't work because of the situation. Cassidy Perone is a lawyer and New York native who now lives in Connecticut, but practiced in New York State when she became pregnant and gave birth to her daughter, Olivia. She says her only choice after her daughter's passing was taking short-term disability, which is $170 a week for up to 26 weeks, far less than her previously approved amount of $1,100 through paid family leave. I was 36 weeks pregnant. I was right at the finish line, only to be told, I'm sorry, there is no heartbeat. My husband and I walked out of that hospital empty-handed, brokenhearted, and unsure how we were going to carry on without her. Seven days later, We buried our daughter, and the very next day, I receive a call indicating to my employer that they are revoking my previously approved paid family leave because my daughter had died. Perone is expecting again, but after her experience with paid family leave in New York State, she began practicing law in Connecticut, where she says leave policies are less likely to cause financial hardship in the event of a stillbirth. Taking the time she needed almost depleted her and her husband's savings. But Perone said going back to work too quickly after her daughter's passing could have exposed her to legal malpractice. So many women nowadays that are educated and are the primary breadwinners in their family being forced to choose between following the advice of their doctors or going back to work to pay their bills. It's, it's unacceptable going back to work to practice law after two weeks. 
postpartum would have put me in a situation of malpractice, but that is what New York put me in. That is the, that is the position that New York put me in. Patrick said supplemental disability could yield funds comparable to paid family leave, greater than $170 per week through temporary disability. Uh, usually it's paid by the employee and it's paid versus, it's usually a percentage of their salary and depending on the waiting period for it to start, they can certainly um, make up the difference of their regular pay by supplemental insurance. Supplemental insurance could be the quicker solution for mothers, birthing partners, and families in New York. But lawmakers are still working to amend workers' compensation law, and have been since the 2019-2020 legislative session. For New York Now, inside the state capitol, Alexis Young. And the Senate has now passed a bill on that, but nothing just yet in the Assembly. But before we let you go, another state lawmaker has been accused of sexual assault. Two women say Assemblymember Juan Ardila tried to sexually assault them at a party in 2015. Ardila has not denied the allegations, and several lawmakers, including Governor Kathy Hochul, have called on him to resign. Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty stopped short of doing the same, at least as of Friday morning, and said that's between Ardila and his district. Well, listen, um, you know, the allegations that were made are, you know, serious and the behavior that uh, was... Uh, described as, you know, totally, uh, you know, unacceptable. Um, but I think that's, you know, a decision that, you know, Juan and his constituents are going to, you know, have to, uh, to think about. So. We'll let you know if anything happens there. But that does it for this week. Thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well. Funding for New York Now is provided by WNET.